This week, it brings me great pleasure to present the finale of season four. And what a season it has been. Huge thanks to Peps McRae, Sarah Farrell, Charlotte McKechnie, Cassie Young, Nick Hart, Tom Sherrington, Oliver Caviglioli, and Shannon Doherty. It really has been something else to share your wisdom with the world. And I know that lots of people have learned so much thanks to your generosity. Now this week, I have the tremendous honor of welcoming the one and only Mary Myatt to discuss the past, present and future of professional development, as well as what lies in store when Primary Hut hits the shelves this spring. As always, when I take the time to record the pre-show drops, I wanna say a massive thank you to all of our supporters on Kofi. As you might already know, we wanna to keep Tadape advert free so that our recommendations remain impartial and born of genuine interest and inspiration. But things like the increasing demands Christopher Such makes in his writer, including but not limited to a Fabergé egg each month and a solid gold keyboard are driving overheads through the roof. To help support the podcast and quell Christopher's thirst for material goods, you can subscribe at kofi.com forward slash Tadape by choosing one of three subscription levels, each which will provide you with access to episode transcripts, priority episode requests, monthly CPD videos, or even all of the above. To show your support, visit kofi.com forward slash Tadape. That's ko-fi.com forward slash T-D-A-P-E. There's no expectation that you do subscribe, but we hope that it'll be worth your while if you do. And I think that's enough for me for now. So without further ado, let's spend some time thinking deeply about primary education. So this week, I'm very lucky to be joined by Miri Myatt. And Miri, as a fan of the show, you'll know that we always begin with our guests and numbers, just to get a feel for who you are, where you're from. And my first question is years as a teacher. So, Kieran, delighted to be joining you for this. I'm a huge fan of your podcast. I learned so much from it. So I was checking this. I started training nearly 30 years ago. So I'll have been teaching for 29 years this year. First year group taught? Well, because I'm second, my background is secondary religious education. So from the word go, I was teaching year seven to year 11. And then a couple of years in, uh, I then got an A-level group going. So really, I've I've taught across the whole of uh, secondary age group. Last year group taught? Well, again, it would have been all of them before I left the school to join the local authority. Yeah, and they all have their own great gifts and and great personalities across each year. I mean, as a cohort, you know, year nine feels very different from year seven and year 11 and year 13. Important year group? I would say year nine, because that's where they've got the potential to go off the boil. If you can keep them absorbed in interesting stuff in year nine, you kind of got them. And a big indicator in secondary where they've got an option to take it then to, a, in my case, a full GCSE course, because in my school, everyone took a short course in religious education. So some of the students had the opportunity to take a full course as well. So I was up against geography and history, and which is great. I was delighted for them to do that. But it's an indication of the extent to which students were engaged that they opted to do this additional GCSE as well. But also, they're, they're just so interesting in year nine you know all the potential for things to go wrong so I think if you can get to grips with them then you're really going to fly. It's fascinating because obviously asking lots of primary teachers about which year is most important but I've never really sat down with a secondary teacher and asked them the same questions. What about your favourite, I suppose your favourite year group? Am I, am I right in guessing year nine as well? 
Yes, I, I loved I loved them also when they were in year seven. And then, you know, teaching A-level is very special because, you know, the relationship shifts and, you know, you don't have to have eyes in the back of your head like you do sometimes in year nine. And it's it really is, you know, adult to young adult conversations. And that's a very, very precious, special, you know, stretch of time if, you, if you're able to teach A-level. Blog posts at miriamayat.com? Oh, the number. Oh, um, over 100. Wow, that's <laughs> impressive. And tweets? Oh, I had to check this. It's just over 51,000. I have been on like forever. No, so I joined in 2011, but um, it took me a couple of years to get the hang of it. So I've really only been active since 2013. Yeah, so 51,000. That's a lot of my life, isn't it? A bit sad, really. I, I don't know about sad because you're contributing to the conversation, you know, that lots of people want to engage with. So, I, you know, I think it's essential work, more, more than sad. So you're a teacher, school leader, co-founder of the RE Quality Mark, chair of Centre for Youth and Education, member of the Curriculum Advisory Group for the Oak National Academy, education advisor, writer and speaker. Tell us about your journey and how you got here. Yes, I, I, I came, I come from a family of teachers. So I'm one of six children and then the parents and out of the eight of us six of us in education so both my parents were teachers and four out of the six siblings were so it it was all kind of there I always found it really really interesting the conversations between my parents and then I'd done a couple of things before I then um, decided to teach in my in my 30s I was very lucky I worked in a school in Suffolk with tremendous support from local advisor for religious education, worked very closely with him. And, um, you know, really from the get-go, I was given the chance to work on curricular materials with a handful of other colleagues and learned so much from that. Actually, you know, what is it we're trying to pull together that's going to make the most difference for uh, pupils and students? And then I I left there and, and joined the local authority and I was there for um, about eight years. And then I left in 2011. And since then, so when I joined the local authority, I had responsibility for religious education uh, and general school improvement um, and leading on a handful of uh, national initiatives within the local authority. So able, gifted and talented as it was then. I left about 10 years or so ago. That's code for being made redundant when there were the cutbacks in local authorities. And since then, I've been working in schools, talking to pupils, teachers and leaders about learning leadership and the curriculum. For the most part, I've been an invited guest in schools. But for about four years, I was also um, an inspector. I've inspected across all phases, early years up to key stage five, including special schools as well. But I specialised in leading in secondary inspections. And that was three or four times a term. Um, And what I've learned from that work is that the principles of high quality practice and provision, really in whatever phase, whatever part of the sector, they are underpinned by the same values and the same ideas. And so that's why my work, I share examples from across the sector where I think there's messages that all of us can take. And then about five years ago, I'd done quite a lot of blogging just to clarify my own thinking and then wrote my first book, um, High Challenge, Low Threat. And all I'm trying to do when I write is clarify what I'm thinking about in relation to, to strong and good practice, whether that is in relation to leadership 
or whether it's in relation to curriculum and pedagogy. But it's always a very uncertain process. So it's just really, really affirming when one or two people find it helpful. And then the latest project, the one I'm currently working on with John Tromsett, but is is a version of um, our latest book, which we did together on curriculum conversations between subject and senior leaders. Um, So the thread of my work is always trying to answer questions that I'm asking myself about how can we make this as robust and as slick and as um, amusing and as enjoyable as possible. Yeah, and I think yeah, some of the conversations that have developed because of your work, you know, I don't I don't think it can be overstated. You know, it's fascinating listening to your talking about come from a family of teachers. Do you think there was a level of institutional knowledge that you came into the profession with? Because I'm someone who there are no teachers in my family, so I'm almost learning from scratch. <laughs> What do you you reckon? (laughs) I think it's really interesting, that insight, Kieran, because I think there is stuff that you just absorb from being around a kitchen table and people debating and disagreeing. I think that has given me a bedrock of kind of insights, particularly the arguments that my mother used to have with my father. She used to say, because my father was secondary English and my mother was primary, she said, you just teach a subject as I teach children. And, you know, that's that's quite an interesting insight because actually I, I considered that I was teaching young people, you know, when I was in secondary. I think there was just a stuff that, you know, just enters your DNA and I'm sure that would be the same from lots of families as well. Yeah. To, to a certain extent, I'm thinking about my own children and the conversations they hear in the car and you know, it was my wife and I are both teachers and around, like you say, around the dinner table, you know, I wonder if... Uh, wonder if that'll shape their thinking but you know there's, there's still quite a number of years left before we get to that now education can be quite a cyclical beast you know but your message has enjoyed a longevity and durability not afforded to most why do you think your work has enjoyed this sort of perceived timelessness well that's very kind of you to frame it like that because you know if I'm honest Kieran I just think of myself as an old bat up a mountain in Wales and you know when you get feedback from people saying we well, found that quite helpful actually it's always a bit of a surprise to me. In terms of longevity I think at the heart of education is sharing some interesting stuff with pupils and students making sure that they have learnt it having some conversations with them and then them showing that in one form or another, could be written work, could be something that they demonstrate, that they have actually got some insights and are able to do something on their own terms as well, as a result of what they've been taught. Now, maybe I'm oversimplifying it, but that seems to me to be the heart of what we're doing in our schools and in our classrooms. And I think, you know, if I, if I go back to, you know, my own background, which is which is classics and, and Greek philosophy, so I came into RE through through philosophy, is, um, you know, I'm thinking of, of Socrates and the Socratic dialogue. You know, at the heart of that is actually teasing out, you know, what we might understand to be true and what might we then come to realise as having less validity. And so the idea that we transmit what is most useful from one generation to the next I think is just a a long-standing piece of work and I think there's plenty of stuff that um, can support that work make it more efficient make it more enjoyable but also I think sometimes we just overcomplicate things as a sector I don't think as individuals so that I, I just think the eternal truths of 
conveying interesting stuff to children that it's important for them to know, to, to flourish in society and be civilised citizens, have a good life and also, you know, a decent living. Um, I, I, I don't think that there's... Um, I don't think I'm saying anything new. I just think I'm just tapping into that tradition. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense, you know, because I think certainly, you know, the clearer the message, you know, and the simpler that we sort of try and transmit it, I think the more chance we have of, of people engaging with the conversation, you know. I'm certainly been guilty of overcomplicating things when I've tried to explain to people in the past. And yeah, I, th I think, you know, listening to you say that, you know, it, it makes a whole lot of sense. Some of the greatest thinkers and writers you know, do what Einstein said we should be doing. You know, if we really understand something, we should be able to explain it in terms that a four-year-old can understand. And when I look at top quality writing, it has that capacity, whether it's Carlo Rovelli's um, Seven Brief uh, Lessons on History, whether it's uh, Richard Feynman's work, again, on physics, I'm just thinking of those in particular. You don't need to have a science background when you're in the company of those sorts of minds and you're reading their work so I think there has been a tendency to over complicate things and I think what um, sits alongside that is when we know we've got something quite complex to teach we have to break it down into the into the simplest possible parts that children have got a bridge to get into it and I'll give you a quick example um, that you know, if I'm teaching um, in key stage three about Judaism, a fundamental um, piece of, of Jewish theology, a fundamental concept is the covenant. So covenant is quite a big word, but every, virtually everything hinges around that. So it's really important to unpack what, the, what a covenant is in that context. So it's a deal or agreement or a contract, in this case, between God and the Jewish people. But before I can get to that sort of theological bit, we've got to under, understand what it means to break a deal or an agreement. And um, I've got a bit of a shaggy dog story about how I used to unpack that for my students in relation to buying, potentially buying a motorbike, which was on the cards at the time. And I eventually did buy one, but it was about, you know, if I had decided you know, to, to well, I would ask the students what sort of motorbike I might buy, so I'd have lots of contributions of that. That would take a couple of minutes. And I said, well, so, suppose I had done a deal to buy one from one of your parents or, or whatever, and then on the way back from that, I find someone who can sell it to me cheaper and I go with them instead. What have I done to the original deal I've, I've done with your parents? So you can unpack what, what that's about, the disappointment, and you wrap it up quite quickly because you do not want a whole lesson talked about the various men merits of motorbikes and why I was a bit of a saddo to end up with a motor gutsy. Um, that's for other times, but you've got to the heart of, of what that is and then you can transpose that quite quickly to what does it mean to keep a deal or agreement on both sides. So you can you can get all sorts of theological stuff out of that. But if you just go into a big idea straight away as a relative expert in the field and you're working with novices then you need to really think through you know what is it that that, that might get in the way of it you know I notice in 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 your book thinking deeply about primary mathematics you know lots on misconception what could possibly go wrong in children's thinking and how are we going to pull that back and in mathematics that would be stuff around concrete and and pictorial and in my case, I'm doing that in a similar parallel universe within religious education. That's a wonderful example, you know, because I can actually feel 
that disappointment. You know, I've got I've got concrete sensations. You know, I was, I was actually reading about what do we mean when we when we say concrete. And um, Douglas Clements had written about can you use manipulatives on a computer because our sense of concrete doesn't necessarily require physical things there. I'm and, and feeling that sensation of the disappointment because I'm you know not with a motorbike, but I've definitely let my parents down in that way in the past before. And you know, so I, I really get a sense of what you mean <laughs> by confident there. <laughs> In addition to the wonderful work you do in person, you've also curated a fantastic bank of CPD videos at Maiden Co. What was your inspiration for making this pivot? Um, because it seems from the outside that this was a direction you'd have ended up going in, you know, pandemic or not. Well, it's interesting you say that, Kieran, because I, I'm a great believer in two things. One is if I've got something that I can offer that is going to be helpful in some small way, to an either an individual group of people. And I've, I've got some capacity to think that through and prepare some materials. I'm, I'm up for that. But also, I, I firmly believe in building in public because I hate this idea that any one person has all the answers. And so I, I quite like to put my work out there flawed, but with sufficient thought behind it, and then to adjust as we go through. So as far as the Martin Co. work is concerned, um, what happened was that um, and I hadn't realised that this a bit naive of me, but if you you will found you will have found this too that if you write a book, people want you to come and talk about it, which is a complete surprise to me. I just thought you got the book. <laughs> Since about two thousand and seventeen, I I was having more requests than I could fulfil in person because you've only got so much time that you can offer to people. Um, and so what I'd done was that um I. I prepared some recordings of the main pieces of work that people were asking for. And so if I couldn't make something, I could just say there's that available. Obviously, there was a fee to it, but it was less than having me in. And I had thought bef actually before lockdown, because the demand was still growing. And, you know, it sounds really, really spoiled to say this, but it's actually quite stressful when you actually haven't got the time to do everything you would like to do. So I was going to build that bank. And then lockdown came and I just started putting free, free recordings, free material online, just as part of, you know, that great collective sense that there was, you know, there was research at home, there was the Oak National Academy of the whole community coming together. And then there was Seneca Learn, there was Children TSC, there was lots and lots of stuff. It just struck me there was a demand not just from leaders, but actually from the most important people, classroom teachers and, and teaching assistants and governors as well. And so what I decided, I just put a tweet out in June 2020. I thought, what would happen if instead of having these one-off things that people just pay off, pay once for a relatively high price, what would happen if I flipped the model and built a real bank of these, but that people pay a small subscription to have that growing bank rather than a one-off quite high piece and then never never have that conversation again so I just put a tweet out about that would it be an idea to have something like um, a Netflix model for CPD and so there was quite a lot of affirmation on that so I worked on it quite quickly and launched it at the end of October 2020 the idea was was that it wouldn't just be my work I wanted to bring on other people as well because the other thing I've been concerned about was that there's a handful of people who do do good work, who have a high profile. And 
we all know that there are actually lots of other people who are, who've got great stuff to say as well. So I wanted to broaden the other people who could make a contribution to to uh, what was out there and it would be hosted on on the platform and because it's a commercial venture you know able to pay them and so you know wrap it all up like that that just makes it far more inclusive rather than it being slight elite that you know you get your your stars not that I consider myself a star in the least but you get your high profile people but actually spread that out so that we can grow the next generation of people who are doing interesting stuff and we've got some phenomenal colleagues on there beyond a really low subscription was I always wanted to have some content free so that you know people can just dip in and out of a handful and then if they want the other 300 plus and growing from over 50 uh, contributors uh, then that was available so it just seemed it just seemed a more grounded more inclusive way of offering materials to the sector and the final thing I would say around it is I've never liked being in professional development sessions where there's someone in a suit at the front reading from the powerpoints i can read myself thank you very much don't need you reading they're framed around conversations people talking about interesting stuff and so that brings a sort of energy and life to it that i'm i'm really pleased to see so yeah it was an experiment but i'm delighted to say it. as we speak now we've got nearly twelve thousand people using it in just over a year which is shows the one or two people finding it interesting Amazing. Yeah, I reckon the Venn diagram of people who listen to this podcast and the people who like to watch CPD, you know, online, I think, you know, there's quite a big crossover there, you know, and if I think about how I spend my lunchtime, so I'll, I'll quite often search for key terms and then watch a video, you know, because most of us eat at our desk, don't we, you know, whether that's right or not. Yeah, and I think I think it's fantastic because I have to choose which Saturdays I go to very carefully, you know, because the boys are quite young. I can't I can't spend every weekend away. But being able to have access to the the big conversations is, is is phenomenal. How do you think teachers can get the most from Myth and Coast? If you were a teacher and you'd you'd register to, to sort of take part, what what would you do? How would you spend your time? So I'd I'd probably have a look first of all at the subject areas where I might be needing a bit of additional support. I've done some overviews of, you know, the, the key stuff to be covered. And then it'll make other suggestions for, you know, if you want to dig deeper into art, for instance, a lovely series from Paul Carney, you know, internationally well-known uh, and respected specialist. You know, to be able to stop and start and then draw down the resources where we've added those, where they add value. They've been used sometimes in staff meetings as a prompt for discussion so we've we've made a decision actually to keep most of the recordings to 30 minutes because you've got now a staff meeting you don't want a whole staff meeting taken up by watching it and I've seen some breakfast club meetings as well where that's where that's happened and then if we've got more material then we just split it up into different sections then we pull them together as a collection so people can dip in and out of those we've got some people who are just listening to them um, and we're, we're actually in the process of setting up a podcast based based on them just based you know you've got that material why not let everyone have it as a podcast as well we offer it in a way that is a prompt for discussion rather than a three-line whip for how to do things so we really want it to be a space and I, and I think it is to be honest that refreshes professional insights to stuff that is important for teaching and learning and obviously the, the there's a huge amount on on the curriculum um, as well, and I think as far as uh, primary colleagues are concerned, we're going to be uploading 
very soon as we have done for secondary that when we wrote when John Thompson and I wrote the book curriculum conversations between subject and senior leaders we actually recorded those conversations and then we built the individual chapters on the back of those so those are all online for secondary at the moment and then they're going to be the same um, for primary as well so we're John and I and our great colleagues Laker Sharma Emma Turner and Rachel Higginson they're helping us with those uh, conversations so really really rich stuff there and the great thing is it's warts and all it's not people speaking to a script it's people talking about practice in their context it's a really really exciting piece of work yeah it sounds fantastic and you know like you said when you're listening to people just answering questions you know giving their opinions I think if you listen carefully you can get right under what is because obviously I record these conversations you know maybe two hours becomes 60 minutes but I'm listening the whole time to what they're saying and then you know you sort of mix it with my own experience to sort of try and get you know so I think that sounds like a wonderful idea and you know the idea that we might be able to listen to some of the the content as well you know because a lot of people you know certainly a lot of my time is spent listening when I take media and you know do other things so yeah it sounds wonderful Ascribing to you the status of Oracle, you know, as, re- as, as a result of the timing of Mind & Co and the longevity we've discussed, um, I'm very keen to know your thoughts on the next one. What does the future hold for teacher professional development? I would say by way of introduction to that, that I, think, I think the sector can be quite immature in the way that it, te- it treats individual teachers. And I think there's a growing understanding that teachers are intelligent human beings and they're graduates. And so this dumbing down, I think, is is diminishing. Um, I think uh, treating them as though they are intelligent human beings who want to get better uh, because of the heart of being a professional in whatever sphere, whether it's education, medicine, law, accountancy or anything else, is that you want to refine your insights and your practice. And um, you're only going to do that if you're treated as an intelligent professional rather than being um, patronized and, and spoken, talked down to. So I think there's a shift to that long overdue in my in my humble opinion. I also think it's going to be far more tailored to the uh, individual professional needs of the sector. So there is no doubt that there is a case for generic whole school training on things like safeguarding. Beyond that, though, it's about um, individuals identifying where their gaps are with their line managers, and then that being part of um, a program which is funded and time given to fill those professional gaps. It's interesting in the quality of education judgment in the implementation it talks about teachers for instance having good subject knowledge in relation to the curriculum but then it goes on and says that where there isn't good subject knowledge which is basically everyone in the sector myself included leaders are put in place appropriate support so it's done in a highly collaborative way rather than you must do you must do this beyond the safeguarding, as I say. Yeah, I remember I can't remember if it was twenty seventeen or twenty eighteen. Becky Allen was saying at the Teacher Development Forum about how five hundred million pounds a year was wasted on ineffectual CPD, and it feels like in the time since then we have, like you said, taken steps forward. 
too personalized and certainly to center to center our focus on teachers rather than blanket um, development but you know it's very hard for me to get a, a whole sector picture without being in all of the schools I think you're right there. Um, and I still think there's a way to go. But there have been a number of influential voices, you know, uh, Becky Allen obviously being one, but also Claire Hill and Kat Howard's uh, book in Symbiosis um, as well, Stuart Locke and uh, Sam Strickland and others, is saying just move away from this generic whole school stuff because it, it dishonours the individual integrity of of the subjects but also disempowers teachers because they're just shoehorning shoehorning this stuff in rather than it being dream being driven by a um an honest professional need you know we've all got gaps absolutely and i think you know in terms of teacher retention you know giving them that ownership and that individualized nature to their development i think you know i'd bet that you probably get more people sticking around, you know, fingers crossed anyway. What I've noticed is the schools that really get this right. So I'm thinking, for instance, of Jeremy Hannay's school, um, Three Bridges in London. You know, their professional learning is like next level. They're all just so excited to be part of this. and They're all doing research projects and, you know, talking about them and knocking around ideas. I mean, it's almost like, a, you, you know, a... Um, you know, a startup in terms of the excitement that that there is around it because of the way that Jeremy's offered it to people, and so it's not it's not brain it's not brain science to get this right. It is common sense in terms of treating people as though they are, you know, serious adults who who want to refine their practice because our work is never done, and we've got to celebrate that. I mean, I love the fact I don't know stuff. Because it's an opportunity to ask dumb questions of people who do. Yeah, and like you say, it, it's it's catching up with the with the rest of the world, isn't it? And you know, but like I say, fingers crossed, we're moving in the right direction. Recently, you've been conducting interviews with some inspirational teachers as part of the process to help you prepare for the writing and release of the primary edition of Huh. What is primary Huh, and how will it compare with its secondary counterpart? Right, so I'll just go back to how um, secondary her started. So, so John Thompson asked me in February 2020 if I'd be up for preparing, writing a book with him on creating conversations between subject and senior leaders. And I just said, John, I'd love to, but I haven't got time. And then I slept on it and I said, oh, I think there's a way we could do this if we uh, record people as we talk to them and then turn those recordings through transcripts into the book and so that's what we did and within six months we had a we had a book which was fantastic what came out of that was the because it was the lived experience of people who are working at the top of their game all of whom claimed that they they weren't masters or or experts but they clearly are but there's a great deal of modesty sitting behind the, the people the colleagues that we talked to was really fresh insights into how the subjects are constructed within schools and these were just offered as examples not a three-line whip and interestingly I thought there'd be some pushback from colleagues saying well we wouldn't do it like this this is how we do it and so I was prepared for that um you know I'm always happy to defend what I'm done I'm doing and take criticism but I didn't want to expose the people that we'd spoken to that interestingly there's been none of that because people have taken it in the spirit in which we've offered it as uh, one way of modeling conversations 
Um, as we were doing this, we, as it was in its drafts, we shared the book with um, a handful of uh, primary colleagues, both classroom practitioners and CEOs of MATS, and just said, we, we think there might be some threads here. What, what do you reckon? It, would this be useful for primary? And they all came back and said, yes, it is, because although, you know, you're talking to uh, secondary colleagues, we can see some threads of how this might apply in primary. So that was helpful because you you want to speak to as many people as possible through the work that you through the work that you do. However, I had been comp- um, increasingly concerned, as had others, that the the general discourse around the curriculum has got a very strong secondary flavour to it. Um, so you'll have things like, well, when you're working in your departments or faculties, it's like, well. That's not that doesn't happen in primary um, when you're when you specialists come together, you know. And so although we're teaching children from early, you know, from three to 19, the mechanisms through which that material is offered to children, the structures, it's a statement of the obvious, really. They're different in primary than they are in secondary. So we wanted to rebalance that narrative around the secondaryization of the curriculum discourse it's fine there's nothing wrong with it but it's not as inclusive as it might be when you when you're thinking about primary colleagues the other thing to say is and I could, I'm happy to be challenged on this is that it seems to me that most secondary schools are pretty similar in their structures what differentiates them is their size all right but you're going to have your English department your maths department your humanities and all the rest of it You've got a far greater range of structures in primary. So you've got some primary schools. One of them I went to look at recently out of interest for um, one of the many Myatts, who's due to start school in September. 900 pupils, bigger than some secondary schools. <laughs> you know, great, by the way. What You know, wonderful what they were doing and, you know, managed to make it all, you know, really goes in all the rest of it. And then probably within 15 miles in a village in Essex, you could have a primary school with mixed age year groups within one class. So you simply can't talk about those structures being in the same way. So we knew that there was an opportunity here to unpack not just the systems and structures, but also the fact that, you won't need me to tell you, that, but most primary colleagues are, are teaching you know, up to 12 subjects. And there might be knocked back a bit with, you know, specialists coming in to teach PE or, or music or whatever. But for the most part, that's what they are. And so when you're talking about subject specialisms, you can't make the same assumptions that you can in secondary. So we just wanted to open up that space. I've also done a lot in primary, but I'm not primary trained. So even as an NQT, I was in our primary schools as part of the pyramid I was running network meetings, you know, with all of us to discuss. I've, I've got a lot, uh, you know, I've had a lot of, I've had a lot of mileage in primary, but it's not, it's not my first, it's not my first training. So we were very mindful. You've got basically two secondary boards. Uh, and here we were, we didn't want to be patronising to our primary colleagues. But we also needed to have some experts who could frame the questions in such a way that wouldn't necessarily be evident to John and me. Um, so that's why we're doing this work with, um, as I said, Laker Sharma, Emma Turner and Rachel Higginson, so that we're getting this combined conversations of what it might look like in terms of computing, what it might look like in terms of religious education, 
etc. Um, and then we're talking to leaders um, like Kate Obridge and Claire Seeley about you know how they think about the curriculum um, from a leadership point of view. So it's a fascinating piece of work. And then just to flag up that in 2023, we want to do the same for special schools and alternative provision. From the people that I know who have been part of those conversations, you know, you, you've chosen, you know, I, when I say inspirational, I mean inspirational. And certainly people who I, who I would love to sit down with, you know, every day and, and talk about education with. So really looking forward to that. Um, and particularly, you know, we're, we're one of my schools is federated with a special school. And I try to spend as much time with them as possible. But I still think it would take me a long time. And so listening to experienced and inspirational teachers in that, in that context, I think will enrich my own understanding of the sector. So you may have already answered this next one. And obviously, as you listen to the show, you'll know that it's it's not be, me being cheeky. I, I asked Chris such about, about his. Why does, why does the world need primary ha? Bottom line is it probably doesn't. <laughs> Uh, you know, because there's lots of great, there's lots of great stuff out there. But I think what is special about primary hunting, the same goes for secondary, is that having the chance to to have these conversations with colleagues, you know, doing the work in schools, they turn around and say, it is just so lovely to talk about our subjects. And I think we've kind of forgotten some of that across the sector because we're we're too focused on putting dodgy data into spreadsheets we're too focused on downloading third rate worksheets from the internet and it's never a blame game but it's because the system the sector as a whole in my view is very conservative with a small c and it latches on to systems and things that no they didn't serve a purpose in the first place but they certainly don't serve it now and so I think what primary hurt does is it cuts through through so much to say actually at the heart of what we're doing is offering children the riches the insights the golden nuggets of the curriculum and it's just a chance to bathe in that really and um to say actually it's the most important it is actually the most important thing we do absolutely and we're, we're taking such great strides with curriculum and the thinking around curriculum, you know, going back to basics, like you said, and, you know, deciding what's important in the conversation, I think is, is, you know, of the utmost importance, because I think that's our next step is to think about, okay, here are all the wonderful conversations we've had. And what does this really look like, you know, for us so that we can make a distant difference to the, the children that we're working with, you know, so definitely, absolutely. Yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to sort of snapping up a copy. And I think, you know, Tadabe listeners are, they're avid readers. So I've no doubt they'll be snapping up copies too. What are your guiding principles for getting the most from primary, huh? I think an, op- an open mind. And what we've found is, is that you've got a window into other people's insights. And so I think it's, it's useful to say, well, I'm really strong at this. I'm really interested to see what someone else in, in this subject how they're going about it and to intellectually bounce my ideas against those and then to read or watch somewhere where I'm less secure and then I've got some ideas of where I might take it further because for each of them we we then have for each of the chapters we then have links for instance to um, the important statements the purpose of education statements within the national curriculum because there's a tendency 
to go straight to the content that needs to be taught. But if you're going to really run with this, you need to know what the purpose is, pull out the key concepts, the big ideas. And so it's it's more than just those conversations. We've got um, so links to those purpose statements, the links to the national curriculum documents, which are all online anyway, but we just pull them all together there. Um, links to the subject Twitter communities, the subject associations, and then half a dozen high quality websites that can provide um, either materials, high quality materials produced by the experts in the field working alongside teachers. So, for instance, the resources in history from the British Museum, for instance, just fantastic. But you've got those for each of the national curriculum subjects. So you've got two things going on there. You've got these this individual personalised view of the subject working in an individual school. And then you've got kind of national stuff that you can tap into as well. So it's almost like that next level professional development, you know, going beyond what's typically assumed a book can provide. You know, like you say, if if someone more expert than me has said, you need to check out this history source, well, I'm going to do it, you know, and same with any any of the other subjects that we're expected to teach at primary, you know, so I can I can totally see that. Is there anything that schools should seek to avoid or, or teachers should seek to avoid? I think the main thing not to do is to treat it as a tick box, you know, and to and to take something and just try and drop it into your own context. Everything we have to make sense of in terms of the setting in which we work, the individual children, um, you know, that we might have within a class. So to use these as prompts for insights to deepening our practice rather than a tick list or a checklist, because there is still a tendency in some parts of the sector to look for quick fixes and quick wins. And it doesn't work like this. This is deep, ongoing, professional uh, discourse with the subjects, the subject communities, how we might combine them together in topic work and cross-curricular work, but then also widening those conversations out. So I've got I've got a question about this, who, who might I go to? And that's where those additional links are. Uh, can be helpful. But as I see going forward that there's going to be far more collaboration between, um, which is already happening in some multi-academy trusts, you know, using the expertise in one school to share that around, but also um, increasingly small schools working together to share resources, share planning, etc. Definitely. I mean, I've, I've got three schools and my smallest school is one form and they've benefited massively from having access to a two form and a three form. Because I don't know, I think I remember Matt Swain who said to me, you know, you've essentially got a six-form entry school and you can share that expertise and that that understanding. Yes, it's, it's definitely for, you know, massively the benefit of those schools who otherwise, you know, might have three teachers. I certainly have worked recently with schools that have two full-time teachers and everyone else is part-time, you know, because Kent is the way it is, you know, like you're talking about those small areas, you know, there's lots of farming communities and then you've got lots of built-up towns and yeah, it's quite an interesting mix. So I, I can definitely see how that, that would support those schools. Yeah, and, and one further point on that, that actually it's not just the larger schools benefiting smaller schools. I know that was what you're saying, but it was making me think like secondary have got so much to teach primary. No, primary have got as much, if not more, to teach secondary. But actually you will have some great expertise in those smaller schools where they have figured out how to um, do really rich carousels to accommodate those children in the time that they're, they're you know, they're learning in the in the years that they're within that class with one teacher. So it's it's definitely a two way two way traffic. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, I, I, I can only speak to my 
experience at the minute, but I, I totally see what you what you mean. So you've provided inspiration for countless teachers. Who or what are your sources of inspiration? Um, well, it's kind of you to say that because I, I don't. I just think honestly, I just bash out a few words, and it's lovely when people say. Um, well, I'm going to. I've, get, I've got a number actually. So there's this wonderful new book um, from Mick Waters and Tim Brighouse, which is which is just out, and it. You know, I'm just so pleased to to see this book. They they really have their feet on the ground. These great giants, intellect, they're huge beautiful human beings as well so um i have to say that both of them have been uh great inspirations to me mick waters in particular just this hugely imaginative all-encompassing uh vision for for every child just to have some really decent interesting exciting stuff i would also say that i'm learning a great deal from the colleagues i'm working with you know for instance on on myat and co but also the the masterclasses I've been doing with Tom Sherrington. So Tom and, and John, they are, inspiration is a bit strong, but we're mates, put it like that. <laughs> I'm not going to big, big them up to it. No, I'm, I'm, you know, when you're on the completely same wavelength as people and you can just thrash out ideas, that is a real gift. Um, and I've, I've learned a huge amount from them. But the kind of work that Tom has been doing with the masterclasses, you know, I'm thinking particularly of um, Josh Valance, uh, Chris Such's work, which obviously I know very well as well, but Isaac Moore. So you've got these young, really thoughtful, modest, great thinkers coming through. And I learn, you know, they are an inspiration to me. And I was listening to Alex Pethick um, on one of the masterclasses, the, the most recent one. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to have to reframe some of how I think about that. So I'm continually shifting in the light of you know, new people who are inspiring me. And I would also say some head teachers and principals like Ben Erskine. And in my own field, it was a really powerful moment for me um, when we interviewed um, Nikki McGee, um, who is the trust lead for religious education at the Inspiration Trust. And I'll raise my background. I've done a lot over the years, um, inc including, you know, national programs, some of them from scratch, like the Our Equality Mark. And listening to Nikki, I'm thinking, you are next level. You know, I I've been doing this for so long and I am sitting at your feet. And, you know, th that's a marvellous thing to observe that you've got people, several, a couple of generations below you, and you think, I'm learning from you. And that's a great, it gives me great hope for the future. And then I just I just drop in a couple from outside the field of education because I do read quite widely to try to inform my thinking. So I never just want it to be my point of view or other people thinking along similar lines. And I really, really enjoy Rory Sutherland's work on on nudge theory. It's in marketing and advertising. But again, it's it's done in such a humane way. I think there's a lot that the education sector could learn from there. And then David Ogilvy, um, who who's one of the greatest advertising <laughs> gurus of all time. Again, what characterizes all the people I'm mentioning is their pursuit of clarity and simplicity grounded in an understanding which is changing over time of how human beings behave, what they relate to, what's going to switch them on, but also in a way that is really clear, really simple, so everyone can understand. So you probably only wanted one, but I've given you a whole handful. 
No, not at all. And, you know, the two things I'm taking away there are one, being willing to learn beyond the field. I think that's really, really important. But also, if I still have the humility, you know, throughout my career to learn from others, you know, I hope I never get to the point where I think I've figured a line. It's very clear that you don't think that and you're th- you're always willing to learn. I think that's that's something that everyone can take away from from just listening to your source of inspiration. You know, it's fantastic. Um, and I'm sure the people who you, you did mention will be, you know, over overjoyed to have heard how, how kindly you've spoken of them. So is there any final advice you have for those ready to engage with primary huh? you know, professional development or the, the curriculum in general? I'd say a couple of things. One is um, it's going to take time. That's why we called it her. It's the, it's, her was John's idea. It is the um, Egyptian god of everlasting things. And so it's slightly tongue in cheek because it also, John and I, when we're doing these interviews, we're quite often saying, huh, we didn't know that. <laughs> But there is this spirit which I, I try to 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 hold on to, and that is that, you know, this I'm deadly serious about this work, but I think we can also have um, a lightness of touch around it as well. So I, I don't take myself seriously at all. I'm always happy for people to have a pop at me. So I think for anyone who is, you know, um, beginning that journey of taking professional development to the next level is to recognise that it is a never-ending process, to breathe into that and not to think, not to beat ourselves up when something isn't done as quickly as we would like. Also, not to try and get things too polished too soon or, or, or that we can't start something unless it's all wrapped up and we've really got a handle on it. Because it is through, we need to know enough, we need to explore enough, we need to have enough under our belt and enough planning done, but then it's going to change as we teach it. So to allow for that kind of um, material to breathe as we actually live, live it. Um, and I would also say that to make a conscious effort to tap into the highest sources and the most authentic sources possible, because, you know, we've got to move away from quick, quick wins, quick fixes, silver bullets. Um, it's a deeply engrossing, interesting, fascinating piece of work and so i just wrap up by saying you know feel free to enjoy it have a laugh wise words yeah i think you know permeating throughout our conversation here you know you can get that sense that this is this is something that's going to go on for a long time that we should be in the mindset that we're going to continually improve but we're going to be very deliberate in how we make those improvements and things don't change overnight you know and i think I, I, I listen back to these episodes quite a lot, you know, certainly during the editing process. But I, I'm thinking I've only just got the base understanding of what you've said tonight. And I know that when I go back, there will be more that I can pick up on and, and then push my practice further and further. You know, so it, it has been, you know, both an honour and a, and a privilege to, to speak with you tonight. And I really, really appreciate it. So thank you very much. Well, it's absolutely great having the chance to talk with you, Kieran. Huge admirer of your work and, you know, having conversations about us as professionals, you know, what what could be better? So thank you very much indeed. So I, I don't think I can let you go without finding out exactly when we can expect to see Primary Huh on, the, on bookshelves, you know, in all good bookstores. Do you have a date in mind for publication? Well, it's scheduled for April 2022 and thank you for asking no i know that i know listeners will be extremely excited to to find that that's almost it's just around the corner thank you (laughs) 